Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Alexander Schmieding and you're listening to From Vision to Creation, a podcast that dives deep into the minds of visionaries who pursued their passions and made their visions a reality. On each episode, we will have conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, industry leaders, and business owners, and we'll explore the mindset that fueled their desire to take their dreams from vision to creation. This podcast is brought to you by Proper Placement, a full-service marketing agency that can help promote your business through social media marketing, paid advertising, email marketing, and more. Find out how we can help grow your business at properplacement.com. At Proper Placement, we don't have clients. We have partners. Welcome back to another episode of From Vision to Creation, the podcast that explores the journeys of creative minds turning dreams into reality. Today, we have a remarkable guest in our studio, a true triple threat in the world of filmmaking. He's a screenwriter, producer, and director. Joining us today is Jack Deakins, a seasoned professional currently making waves on ABC's hit series, The Rookie. But Jack's talents extend far beyond television. He's also the creative force behind the critically acclaimed short film Obscura, a project that has earned him prestigious accolades in the industry. Obscura isn't just a film, it's a triumph. At the LA Film Awards, Jack clinched the titles of Best Thriller and Best Actor in an Indie Film, showcasing his prowess in both storytelling and directing. The New York Film Awards recognized his outstanding work with Best Indie Film and Best First-Time Director Awards, cementing his status as a rising star in the directorial realm. The Actors Awards Los Angeles honored the stellar performance of his cast, awarding Best Actor in an Indie Film, while the Top Shorts Film Festival crowned Obscura as the Best Indie Film. What makes Chuck's journey even more compelling is the timing of our conversation. This interview took place against the backdrop of the 2023 writer's strike, a challenging period for creatives in the industry. Despite the obstacles, Jack continued to navigate the turbulent waters, proving that true artists find inspiration even in adversity. But Jack's story doesn't start with his professional accomplishments alone. He carries with him the rich legacy of being raised by an agent and actor, providing him with a unique perspective and insight into the world of entertainment. Today we delve into the depths of Jack Deacon's creative mind, exploring his journey from vision to creation and uncovering the lessons and inspiration that fuel his artistic fire. So without further ado, let's welcome the multi-talented Jack Deacons to From Vision to Creation. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to come and do this with me. Hey, you know, I'm incredibly busy right now. You know, it's been <laughs> three months, oh my gosh, of just absolute nonstop work. So <laughs> I am absolutely riveted to be here. <laughs> well, that's true because this is week 20 of the strike, right? So how's that, how's that affecting what you're doing now? I mean, to say the most, it's affecting everything. And to say the least, I mean... Holy cow. Week, week 20, is that what you said? It's week 20. Holy cow. I've found that this has been one of the more productive periods of my life, ironically. I'm sort of in this strange position that a lot of people that I know from the show that I work on, I work on The Rookie on ABC. So big network show, a lot of moving parts, 
And everybody's sort of in the same position right now where there's not a whole hell of a lot going on. And I've found that for whatever reason, as a PA, as someone who isn't in a union, someone who isn't sort of guaranteed anything, the contract I get in that moment, I've found that I have nothing to lose by being productive right now. So it's been kind of surreal. I I was brought up in 2007, 2008 when the last writer strike was going on. And that was a really, really tumultuous time for my family. So to be here right now as an adult, as a professional trying to sort of establish myself in the industry in the midst of the largest strike in decades, you know, between SAG and the WGA, it's surreal. It's a weird time, but at the same, you know, on the other side of the coin, it's also been kind of productive, strangely enough. There's been some confusion for me around that just because I really don't know what all of that entails and how it's really affecting people. When writers are on strike, can you not work at all? So essentially what the rules are from the WGA is you, all of your material is dead in the water. You're, you're not sharing your material with anyone, agents who would give it to producers or you yourself giving it to a producer or a struck company. In the WGA, you're, you, all of your stuff is dead. It's just not moving at all. So you can rewrite material, you can work on new material, but it sort of stays under lock and key during the strike. And I think, you know, most of the people in the WGA, most of the writers I know are out picketing and, you know, rightfully so, there needs to be bodies out there in front of every studio every day. But, you know, as a PA, as someone who's sort of like left in no man's land, I, I've found myself picketing, but I've also found myself rereading old material and revisiting old material, but also working on new things. So I think the goal of a strike is to get the points across and get the work done and to bring negotiating power to the committee as they meet with the AMPTP. And the way you do that is through picketing. The way you do that is through showing up. So I think, you know, ideally everyone who's affiliated with the WGA you know, whether that's PAs or assistants or writers themselves in the WGA, you should be out on the lines. And when, when you say PA, what, is, what does PA mean? Production assistant. Production Sorry, assistant. There's so many. The funniest thing, I think, one of the funniest things about the industry is the amount of just insider baseball <laughs> jargon that gets thrown around and no one ever bothers to explain. Any award show, you know, most of the trade pieces you read about the industry, it's like, Nobody ever bothers to explain any of this stuff. So <laughs> if there's anything else, please just shoot me straight because I, I can get a little wrapped up in that. No, no, no. Th- and thanks for saying that because when I was doing some research, I did come across a lot of acronyms. I was like, oh man, this is going to be, this is going to be interesting. So Jack, the first time I met you, you and your family hosted Kyle and I for a lovely dinner at your home. And I can't even tell you the impression that you guys made on me. I remember sitting down at the dinner table, watching you and your brothers interacting with your dad and with your mom. And I felt like I was in a sitcom. I was like, this is, this can't be real. Is this a scripted? Like they're so funny and they're so energetic. You mentioned that you were raised by an actor and an agent. That was your father, correct? Mm -hmm. My father was an actor. My mother was an agent. Would you say that having parents that worked in entertainment influenced your decision to pursue the line of work that you're in now? I would say definitely, much to their chagrin. I was raised constantly, I would say, with my parents in my ear saying, you can do whatever you want to do. You can be whatever you want to be, as long as that's not in Hollywood. 
Oh, wow. Because they both know the reality of the business. And, you know, I think you could say, they, you could say the same for a lot of businesses right now in, in this country. But the reality of the business is, is tough and it's brutal. And in, in a lot of ways, as we're experiencing right now, it's, it's feast or famine. So any parent, I think, who loves their child and wants their child to seize their fullest potential would say to stay away from Hollywood. It's sort of a, a funny thing that I like to sort of chide them about these days because, you know, I, I've found myself one way or another sort of gravitationally pulled back, you know, into the orbit here. I've, I've been pulled back to the business that I basically grew up being told stay far, far away. <laughs> but, you know, all that being said, maybe it's just a rebellious streak in me or something. But I found myself sort of pulled back. And you studied at the University of Colorado at Boulder. What were you studying while you were there? I was studying journalism and political science. Oh, okay. So you were kind of teeing up for this line of work. It was always there. I think uh, writing, ever since I was, oh my God, I feel like ever since I've had my first memory, (laughs) it's been about writing. It's been about stories and telling stories. And, you know, Kyle will tell you as much. And a lot of the friends that I've known my whole life, I've always been... You know, some kids are doodlers, some kids are, are more tactile and they're playing with toys. And I always found myself with a pen and a paper trying to make some sense of what's going on around me or some sense of something that doesn't even exist. So I think through writing, I found myself in college, school of journalism, political science. It felt like, and I think a lot of people who listen to this are probably going to laugh or grin a little bit, but it felt like the safest bet to go into journalism. I picked the dying industry. I picked the dying horse <laughs> to get on <laughs> for the race. Well, and what, what brought you back to Los Angeles after you graduated from college? You know, to sum it up quickly, I, I was broke. And um, I knew that whatever future there may be for me in journalism, in, you know, writing in general, whether that's creative writing or, you know, I guess screenwriting, as it turns out later down the road, whatever I choose, whatever path I want to go on, it's not going to be in Denver. You know, mm-hmm. it's a, Denver is a great city. I have a lot of love for Denver. I have a lot of love for Colorado and Boulder. But if you want to pursue writing in a really meaningful way and you want to put yourself out there and on the map, you need to be in LA or New York. Right. You know, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm very glad that you decided to pursue writing, Jack, because you are amazing. I've read a lot of your work. I've seen your shorts. You have a gift. I remember the first time I watched Obscura, I was blown away. And I was actually living in Austin and Kyle talked to me about you. He was like, it's my friend Jack, who's a screenwriter and he makes shorts for fun. He just made this one, this really great one. And I remember watching it and just, you were just such an enigma to me. I was like, who is this guy? Like writing scripts, you know, get it working together with his friends. And I guess what I'm getting at is, let's start with Obscura. How did that, vision come to be? Or how did that idea come to be? And when did you say, hey, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make this. It's a really, really convoluted story. So get a gear up for this. But uh, the first time that the idea sort of started to have a, a nascent, you know, formulation in my head was I was in Africa in high school on a service trip. So total, total curveball way, way out there. <laughs> I was in Tanzania. And it was a two-week service trip. And this was sort of in the beginning of my love for photography. And so I'd brought 
my first camera with me. It was a Canon Rebel, just a cheapo little, you know, Best Buy wonder. And I was just starting to get into photographing landscapes and photographing animals and, and people. And something that really quickly dawned on me for, you know, I'm sure others have, have been to, you know, lesser developed countries. And sometimes there's superstitions about some of the technology that we bring along with us. There's superstitions, especially about cameras. You know, there's documentation of superstition from Native Americans about cameras here. And basically what I, what I had sort of heard was this, this story, this scary story about how the camera steals the soul of the subject. So while I was there, you know, we were walking through the local village and I was basically flagged down as I was walking, just snapping away with my camera. And our guide spoke to us and was like, you can't do that here. You cannot have your camera out. You need to put it away. Like the people are not, they, they don't want to see that. It scares them basically. And then that's the first time I heard that story. And then I think ever, ever since then it's sort of evolved. And so I sort of had that written down and I have, you know, 40 plus notebooks, I think from just scribbling around on a given day. And I remember in college, it was right before COVID. It was like December of 2019. So no good time for me. It was right before I was about to start my second semester and, and graduate. And I was sort of lost and I was feeling like journalism wasn't the right way. And I was about to graduate with a degree in journalism. So I sort of felt like an idiot a little bit, an idiot who was in, you know, <laughs> $200,000 worth of debt. And I had met with someone in LA, a family friend who I had expressed my unhappiness with journalism. And, and he basically was like, you should write a script. You should try writing a script. And with that in my head, sort of gnawing at me in that December, I was flipping through old notebooks and diaries. And I was sort of like, if I were to even write a script, you know, what would it be? What, what's my voice? What's my thing? And stumbled upon this note from, you know, five years prior. In Africa. In Africa. So yeah, deep, deep in the archives. So are you telling me Obscura was your first script? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. No pressure, Jack. That was, it was fantastic. So you're going to have to top that for the rest of your career. Good luck. It, it no. was, it was a really, really weird experience. I had sort of, I took a, I guess it's, it would be more fair to say I took a screenwriting class when I was studying abroad in England, my junior year and got my ass kicked. I got to see the guy hated me. It was horrible. People weren't happy. You know, the English, the sensibility of the English in terms of humor is really, really unlike ours. <laughs> and I sort of found myself between a rock and a hard place over there where nothing I was writing was working. And I wrote this like five page, you know, whatever scene. I think that was the final we had to do for this class. So I wouldn't even count that as being in the realm of being a completed script. But yeah, Obscura was, was the start for me. So yeah, I finished that. I think, I think it was March of 2020. So middle of COVID, not a whole or, you know, right in the start of COVID, not a mm -hmm. whole hell of a lot going down. Things were sort of starting to clamp down a little bit. And then it came. So you wrote the script. And then at what point did you say, I'm going to create a short to really promote this? How did that happen? That was sort of the practical side of the business. That was, it's been drilled into me for a long time. I think my, it's funny, I have two opposites as parents, you know, despite them saying, 
we don't think you should go into the industry. We don't know that it's, you know, the right thing for you. It's so unstable, you know, X, Y, Z. By the time that they knew that I was leading that direction, they started to give me real practical advice. And the practical advice my dad gave was just, just keep writing, just keep writing, keep, you know, practicing your craft. And the practical advice the agent, my mom gave was, you need to have something to show for. You need to have something real. Mm. You need to have something that you can bring to people and say, this is me. This is my voice. This is my work produced. Because at the end of the day, you know, there's a lot of really, really great scripts out there, but there's not a lot of produced scripts. Mm -hmm. If you look at the material that is out there and the material that gets produced, it's, it's a wide disparity. So um, rationally, she was like, let's, let's make something out of it. So I got together with some buddies and essentially this was, I think a year, a year and a half after I had finished writing the full feature. Uh, I had heard about the idea of a proof of concept. I think I had an indie filmmaker's guide to surviving the industry, something like that. That was the title. <laughs> so whatever, it was a Christmas gift from a family, from family member. And in that guide, it was like, you need to have a proof of concept. You know, if you want to sell an idea, you need to have a proof of concept. So that's where the, the sort of short started to take form and come from. And basically what I ended up doing was I took a slice of the feature and sort of condensed it and then added an ending to it to give it that sort of uh, proof of concept feel. So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's, where it's, that's where it came from. It came from like the, just the reality that you need something to show people. Creating a proof of concept is so important because people really cannot see the vision without it. Um, in fact, like I remember when I, was, when I was in college, one of my best friends and I invented a lemon slicer and juicer called Squizzers. Um, and everybody told me not to do it. Everyone was like, you can't do it. It's not possible. It's going to be super difficult. It's going to be expensive. And then we did it. I, I, looking back, I don't even know how, but we did it. And then all of the people that were saying, oh, no, don't do it, would tell me, we always knew you could do it, Alexander. I was like, oh, yeah, sure. Now that it's done. But my point in bringing this up is actually having something, a proof of concept, it's so powerful, so moving. In fact, just personally speaking, when I watched your, when I watched your short, I was inspired and I was kind of looking around and, you know, I have a creative, I have the creative bug too. And I was looking around and I was like, what am I doing? Like, I need to do something, you know? So I'm, I'm glad you made it. It was fantastic. And I think that, um, in doing that, it does set other things into motion, maybe, and maybe things we haven't even seen yet. Once you started filming the short and collaborating with your friends to get this done, did you learn any lessons or was it not what you thought it was going to be? What was your experience doing that? Yes. <laughs> the answer to all those questions, just, just a flat out yes. I, so I think the best way to, to tell that would be to start from the sort of beginning, the pre-production phase. So by the time I had a cut and polished copy of the proof of concept draft, I went to my buddy, my best friend, Matthew Campbell, hell of a producer. Um, he's someone who I would love to work with for the rest of my life. Absolutely. And I went to him and I said, okay, I have the material here. I know the look, you know, I have my storyboard sketched out. I know I wanted to direct it too. That was a really important part of this to me because there was always the possibility of outsourcing it. 
to someone, you know, we know a lot of people who are filmmakers. We know a lot of people who have more experience directing or more experience shooting it. And I knew from the get-go, I was like, I want to tell this story. I want to direct it. I want to have that control. So I went to Matthew and I, I sort of laid it out for him. And he said to me, he was like, we can do this for under a thousand bucks. And I said, there's no way. There's absolutely no way. I mean, the rentals alone. I mean, it's, it was a three-day shoot. And I will tell you, this was like a once, once in a lifetime stroke of luck sort of situation. I think we pulled, we, we pulled every trick that we had <laughs> under our hat. So it was like a, a crash course in guerrilla filmmaking. You know, if you ever want to just get down and dirty and just get something done and make it, this was it. Under budget, you know, under budgeted, we're understaffed, we're, we have just nothing. Skeleton crew, I'm, I'm moving C stands, basically the equipments that, the equipment that holds lights and, and, you know, I'm holding the camera at times, I'm holding sound equipment. I'm, it's like we were just down and dirty the whole shoot. It was really, it was a really special experience. But he said, we're, we're going to do it for under $1,000. And I said, okay. And I sort of left that to him because from the get-go, I was like, I am not a numbers guy. Just to sort of circle back on, on your episode with Larry Divney, you know, I think he made it really clear that there are sort of two kinds of people. That's a big generalization, but two kinds of people. There, there are people who are really, really keen on numbers and the sale and the pitch, and they know how to work that side of the industry. And then there's people who are, are more artistically and creatively oriented and together the synthesis of that you make great television and great movies but when those two things sort of get their wires crossed those two aspects get their wires crossed you can have some issues so i told matt i was like i know you're into numbers i can helm the creative side so i'm just gonna i'm gonna leave this to you because i know you can do it and two weeks later he comes back to me he's like okay we have our insurance plan i found a dp I found a sound guy. These are all friends of friends, by the way. And we You're found- You're kidding. Every yeah. single person oh, on, that oh, yeah. helped put this together. Oh, yeah. Okay. Everyone. Friends. It was all net. It was, an, it was a network thing. So he's like, I got our sound guy. I got our camera guy. Got the location. The biggest thing that we needed for this shoot was the location of the camera store. Harry's camera store. And I always had my heart set on a specific location. I'm from the San Fernando Valley. So- uh, <laughs> I have a lot of love for it and I've always wanted to, to film things in the Valley. I want to be in the Valley. I want to tell stories in the Valley. That's something that's really important to me. It's sort of like a Paul Thomas Anderson effect where you find that all of his movies kind of circle back to the San Fernando Valley. I feel very similar. I have a strong, strong affinity for the Valley. So there's this old camera store on Witsit and Magnolia in the San Fernando Valley and it's called Valley Photo Service. And it was the first place that I got film developed from my first film camera and I knew that that was the spot. When I wrote the script, I had that in mind. And somehow this guy, Matthew, was able to finagle us getting a day there for $100. Oh, so the place you filmed was the place was the that actual, was the place. Oh my god! It was the place. It was the place that I wrote the script and I was like, this is perfect. This is what I want it to be. Oh my god! It was like a so dream cool. come true. It was a dream come true. Absolutely. So he finessed that and we got it for 100 bucks. All we had to do was pay the, the attendant to be there for the day. And turn the air off when we needed it. And how do you go about finding a location to film at? Is that, do you have to get a permit or just permission from the owner? How does that work? So, yeah, I mean, we, there, there is permitting involved um, in LA. I think there, from what I understand, and, you know, I'm not going to 
say that I know more than I do just to, you know, keep it vague intentionally. <laughs> um, from what I understand, there's sort of a, a broad umbrella of student productions and you need a permit for everything else that you're shooting commercial, you know, TV movie, anything in LA, like you need, it's a, obviously, you know, that's how the town makes its, its money. As we're seeing with the strike, we're losing billions of dollars. That's how the town makes the money is they issue permits. I didn't realize that. Oh yeah. No, it's, it's a huge, I mean, it's the thing. It's why it's Tinseltown, you know? So it's like, I knew that there's a broad umbrella for student productions and our DP happened to still be in film school. Mm. <laughs> oh, that's perfect. <laughs> See, the idea is cooking. So uh, we sort of pitched it as a student thing, you know, uh, regardless of the fact that, you know, uh, 75% of our crew were graduates who were trying to work in the industry. You know, we still, we still were able to get that pitch sold. So we reached out to the owner. Basically, we went to the, you know, contact, contact us for the camera shop and send him an email. And we were like, hey, we're students. You know, this is where I go to get my film developed. And we made it a very, very personal, sentimental thing. And they were great. They were super lovely and welcoming. And, you know, we had the insurance and paid the attendant. And it it was a it was a great great day. So that location was a shoe in. Matthew again, a hell of a producer. Someone I always want to work with for that reason alone. And then aside from that, we had two other locations. One was my house in the garage. So that you know pretty easy sell on that. And then <laughs> the other one was my brother's apartment in Hollywood. So easy sell, but tough logistically in Hollywood to move all that equipment up for flights. Yeah, I can't even begin to imagine. I have a hard time moving this podcast equipment around with me by myself, I'm like, I, I, I can't even begin to fathom what, how much equipment goes into creating a short. It, how I sort of came to look at it after, after the shoot was like, it's like you're moving from your house every day. Like you're, you're packing up everything you own and you're moving. That's how it felt. Oh Just with goodness. the amount of weight and equipment and, you know, especially delicate equipment, you know, a lot of this, especially sound, camera equipment, light equipment, like these are, you need to, got to be careful. And so you guys film Obscura in three, the short in three days for under a thousand dollars, Jack? I think it came to 800 total. So wow, yeah, he, I'm telling you this guy, Matt, he's a, he's a whiz kid with it. So, so you, you submit it to a few film festivals and you win all kinds of awards. So yeah. best thriller and best actor in an indie film at the LA film awards, best indie film, best first time director. Amazing at the New York Film Awards and Best Actor in an Indie Film at the Actors Awards Los Angeles and Best Indie Film at Top Shorts Film Festival. Let's talk about you submitting the short, how you got it to even be considered for these awards. And then when all the awards started rolling in, talk about like your reaction, your team's reaction. How I want to hear about that. So... It was it was sort of like a, a haze a little bit. I know that's not the most exciting thing, but we had come out of, I want to say it was three months of post-production. Yeah, three months of post-production and I was doing the editing. So I was just sort of inundated with this film. It was my every day. You know, I was, it was nonstop. So by the time I'd finished editing, I talked to Matthew and I was like, look, so we set a thousand dollar budget at the, at the start of this. And I think that this is good enough for us to submit around. And we always, we had the conversation in the beginning, he and I, a very frank conversation, because this was his money we were talking about. So in the very beginning, 
I said, you know, when we're done with this, when it's all said and done, when the cut is ready and we're, we're looking back and we're like, we, we did it. We will make the decision about where it goes from there. Basically, we, we were not going to think about the future. We were not going to think about, it wasn't made to sort of go anywhere beyond what it was experientially. For me, it was, it was always the most important thing was to, for it to be the first one, for it to be that first step into just making something, into making a short film. So once it was done, once the cut was done, and I was like, this is, this is pretty good. This is okay. You know, this is, a, this is a good story. I met with Matt and I was like, you know, we're under the budget still. What can we do with this? And he was totally supportive. He said, let's throw it in. Let's just throw our hat in the ring right away. So nowadays it's different than, you know, I, again, I got, you know, chided by both, both sides, both mom and dad about this. But, uh, when my mom was in the industry, you know, she was doing a lot of work with Sundance and in the nineties, Sundance was sort of a, a different story than it is now. You know, there, there weren't Sundance and I should say the film festival scene writ large is a different scene now. It's heavily heavily commodified now like anything right with tech it's it's become this crazy cottage industry of itself so there's like a website it's called film freeway and you basically upload your film there put you know description who worked on it and you could submit to thousands of festivals just from there so i don't know i i was sort of kind of disenchanted a little bit when when i first opened that door it felt different. It felt sort of detached and it felt like a lot of these people just want you to submit a film for 20 bucks and then forget that it ever existed because it doesn't go anywhere. So I will say when we finally got news that it had won and it had done well. And it, at first, I think we found out it was nominated. I mean, we were floored. We were blown away. I, I couldn't believe that something that I had made, I've always felt this way with my writing and, and any of my work. I felt like I can't believe it when it goes as far as it does. Sometimes it's sort of surreal. You know, I think I'm okay. I think I, I'm, I'm a creative guy. You know, I like what I write, but I think any, any meaningful writer would, would be hard pressed to say that, you know, Oh my God, I, of course it won. Of course it did well. And then <laughs> you sort of start to lose the, the ability to, to be a writer, because I feel like to be a writer is to be sort of down on yourself in a lot of ways and to doubt <laughs> yourself in a lot of ways. So it was cool. It was it was a good experience. It was a nice, nice confidence booster. That was right before I went into the industry full time on the show. So it was it was a good way to, you know, yeah, get some get some skin in the game a little bit and, and feel good about myself. So very, very surprising and super grateful for the opportunity. I can actually really relate to what you're saying about when you're getting praise and you're like, wait, what? Like, I can't believe it. I can't believe that was me or that how far this is going. Cause it'll happen to me too. Sometimes when I'm getting compliments on things that I'm doing, I almost feel like the person that's complimenting me is talking about somebody else. And I'm just kind of sitting there like, yeah, I'll pretend to be that person for a little bit for this conversation. But I think that having that quality, it's, I don't want to call it an insecurity because that's not even it. It's almost like a drive in you that constantly pushes you to do better and better and challenge yourself. And yeah, and if you feel like I'm the best, I've made it, and everything I touch is going to turn to gold, then there's no challenge anymore. And I think that the challenge arises because you're passionate about it. I totally agree. I mean, I think you can see that firsthand with uh, some of the arrogance that plays out in the box office. I think especially 
post-COVID, it's been really interesting to watch what does well and what doesn't do well. And, you know, sometimes the the hubris of a filmmaker will get in the way of the work itself. You know, they're talking it up. They're, you know, getting interviewed by Variety and Deadline and The Hollywood Reporter. And they're talking up their next project and they're talking it up. And it, it's always been this way. I know that for sure. I'm, I'm no fool to that. I, I know that it's there's always been a lot of hubris going into it. But when push comes to shove, it's like it'll only take you so far. You know, this is a world that you've built up for yourself in your head. And the checks and balances will come from the box office and from the critics and from the Academy and, you know. (laughs) (laughs) And so you've directed, you've been doing screenwriting and journalism, and you've had some of your work has been published in Business Insider, the Denver Post, NBC's Thing column. What would you say the main difference between writing a screenplay and, you know, and journalism would be? I feel that I have a lot more liberty when I'm writing a screenplay. I mean, I think that's sort of changing. You know, I'm fairly young in this role right now, but I I feel that I have still that freedom to tell a story in my voice. And often, you know, a lesson that was an early lesson that I learned, and I was very glad to learn it as young as I did, was the first article that I wrote was in NBC, NBC's Think Column. And that was during the Kavanaugh hearings, which was a, you know, a crazy time. And immediately I learned that what you write and what you give the publication isn't going to be you at the end of the day. It's not going to be your voice. It's not going to be your writing when it's published. Because the biggest part of that process is editing and having an editor and having someone who's sort of steering you in the right direction. And especially, I think, in the world of journalism that I found myself drawn to, which was opinion writing, you are often sort of shepherded towards fitting into the the voice of the of the publication. So whether that's Business Insider, whether that's the Denver Post, you know, ironically, I think I found I had the most freedom with the Denver Post. Funny enough, they published a story of mine about a riot in Boulder that I sort of regret to this day. I wrote it. I was young and sort of sort of a hothead. And it was sort of asking a bigger question about during COVID, there was this crazy riot at Boulder and and kids were taking to the streets during lockdown and and they were jumping on cars and the police were deployed. I think the SWAT was deployed from Denver and it was a huge deal. Like, you know, that's a, it's not a small town, but word gets around quick and it's, it's a pretty like cloistered community. And so I wrote an essay and I was like, maybe there's something going on with the youth. There's, the kids aren't okay, you know? And it's like, I sort of regret that in hindsight and wish that maybe there was a little bit more of a push towards, you know, let's tamp this down a little bit from the editor. But yeah, I, I think I, I learned that lesson incredibly early where, you know, I would give my writing, I would give the raw form, my, my raw work to this editor. And they would sort of, you know, they trim as an editor does and they, they, crafted in a certain way. And uh, yeah, I would say the biggest difference is, is that you, you have to fit in, I think, to much more narrow parameters. And part of that is because there's a lot more pressure on, on uh, journalism as a whole, you know, whether that's a major organization like NBC or wh- whether that's the Denver Post, you know, you, you, have to, you have to fit into parameters of what they're looking for in that moment. And that moment could be gone, you know, that could be gone in a day, two days, but 
Yeah, I would say a lot of what gave me tenacity to work in Hollywood came from those freelance days where I was just nonstop inundated with news and I'm reading nonstop and all I'm doing is looking for the next story, the next, you know, take that I can have. And it, it, it was sort of disgusting <laughs> in a way. Yeah. And it I, got, got really disaffected with that and sort of. And how would you, how would you find the next story? That's, that's always been something that's really intrigued me because I know like in journalism, you have to be keeping up with current events, but not only keeping up, maybe anticipating future events a little bit, or how would you find the next big thing to write about? Yeah, for me, you know, it always starts, this is, again, this is the part that I, I don't really, I don't really like, but I felt, especially in opinion, I think the biggest part of opinion writing is, is who's doing the writing, unfortunately. You know, it's not necessarily what's being said, but who are you? You know, why are we going to listen to you? Why, why should the reader give you the time of day? Um, and so I sort of found myself being steered towards chasing stories that would have something to do with me, which, you know, you can see how that's sort of problematic in its own <laughs> way. But uh, yeah, no, it would just involved a lot of reading the news, a lot of following, especially the beats that I, I was drawn to. So a lot of school news, anything with higher education, I was drawn to a lot of religious news I was drawn to. Um, climate change, always been drawn to. So you just kind of find these beats and you check out, you know, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, LA Times, you know, you just sort of, The Economist, if you want to shake it up a little bit, you just, you just find your beat and you keep reading stuff and you see what comes up. And then in terms of anticipation, I think when you are reading the news every day and you have a sense of what's been going on for the last month in terms of current events, it sort of becomes remarkably easy to anticipate what's coming next because, you know, things are scheduled, right? There's a, always a trade summit or there's always a bilateral meeting or there's always, you know, there's always these things going on, but then all of a sudden there's a coup. But you remember that, you know, six months prior, you'd been reading about how things are sort of fermenting and, you know, Niger and stuff. And so it's like, it's, it's a really, it's an interesting world. I think I, I have so much respect for, especially newsroom journalists, not necessarily, you know, the world that I was in opinion writing newsroom journalists, I have an infinite amount of respect for. I don't think I could ever do that when you're just, you are finding each beat. You are, you know, you are so plugged in that beyond anticipation, it's like, you know, you know, you really know mm -hmm. what's happening. And what would you say has been the biggest lesson you've learned in both screenwriting and journalism? I would say, you know, it's sort of cliche, but tenacity. I mean, uh, in screenwriting especially, you need to keep at it. You need to keep writing. You're a writer, so write every day, you know? Sketch something down every day. At least, at the very, very least, ideate every day, you know? Have, have something cooking, you know? Something that's sort of compelling you, especially in these times, like right now, for example, where there's not, not a whole lot going on for me. The future's sort of shaky. It's sort of strange, you know? You you need to be sort of lighting the fire under your own butt, basically. How do you, and how do you, how do you do that? What is your creative process usually? It's similar, funny enough. It's, it is similar to journalism, albeit it doesn't feel as morbid. It doesn't feel like you're necessarily to, you know, use that sort of cliche phrase, chasing ambulances. It doesn't necessarily feel like that. It feels like I watch movies I love. I watch movies I want to watch. I watch movies that I might hate. 
you know, I watch movies that are going to challenge me. I, I read books and plays and, and articles and essays. It's, I, I am just trying to stay plugged into the world of writing because for me, what's most important in screenwriting, but more importantly in writing in general is that you know what's being written right now. You know what's being sold right now. You know what people are liking, what people are hating right now. So I think as I sort of explore that, I find that there's things that's just sort of, you know, it's, it's, it's never just, you know, a light bulb. It's never lightning striking your skull and you going, oh, aha, <laughs> you know, the, the apple falling on your head. You know, it's not mm. that. It's, it's, something, it's something more, you know. Ideas come from, I, I would say it comes from the self. So not, you know, yourself, but the, the deepest part of you beyond, you know, physical and spiritual. It's, it's that, the self, you know, so. I remember listening to an interview um, and I believe it was with Wayne Dyer and somebody asked him if he was working on a new book. And he said that he recalled a playwright that was asked the same question in an interview and they asked him, are you working on a new play? And he said, I don't know, but I probably am. Do you feel that way sometimes? Absolutely. It's a much more passive process than I think people realize. You know, it's similarly, I would say to philosophy, it's like it's it's not necessarily the guy with the beard sitting in the corner of a room looking out the window, <laughs> tickling his beard. You know, it's 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 a constant, constant formulation deep inside, you know, in 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 this part of you that you can't necessarily access by you know, sitting and, and thinking. It's it's a part of you that just is constantly working. Um, and I think creatives have that. Creatives, it's similar to, you know, I would say it's it's like a shark. You know, you're constantly, constantly on the hunt. You're constantly moving. I would say that part of the creative soul is that way. It's just constantly churning. It's constantly seeking. Um so, yeah, I, I would say for myself, you know, whether it's reading or watching or listening or, you know, I love new experiences. And I think that that informs that informs a lot of what I write. Oh, my Jack, I'm serious. I'm needing to hear this right now because, yes, staying plugged in in I think reading and watching films is a great way to keep the creative juices flowing. But also back to what you're talking about um, regarding the soul and the in that part of you that wants to express itself that goes beyond ego and the self. You just went to India. Did you have any really cool experiences over there, you know, like regarding meditations or connecting with the self? And if so, how do you feel that contributes to your creative process? You know, funny enough, I, of course, you know, I, I got back, I, I think two, two months ago, I got back and I think about this a lot still. And since then, you know, it's something that sort of just kind of burns on my mind. It's something that just, it, it stuck with me. I, I had moments while I was there, I was, I was visiting a friend who's been living in an ashram called the uh, Vedanta Academy. And this academy is three hours outside of Mumbai. So fairly off the beaten track <laughs> and uh, just a, a world, a world apart for, for a guy from LA, you know, it's, it's a world apart. So there were definitely experiences while I was there with him that I found myself asking questions like what, 
is this self in me? What What is this sort of essence that I, I can't really access? You know, this part of me that is constantly churning and, and seeking, but I, I can't, I can't really, you know, communicate with that, with that part of myself. What is it? I won't say that I got an answer. I mean, it was, it was two weeks and it was sort of just go, go, go. I found that my, my main goal in being there was to get a story. I wanted to write about it. You know, I was visiting this friend who sort of fell off the face of the earth for, and it's been a year, almost two years that he's been just, he's from New York, went to, went to college with him and we graduated, COVID came and this guy just fell off the face of the earth. And I'm like, what the hell is he doing? What's going on with him? I reached out to him and we basically started talking for six months before I left. And he was like, I'm living at this ashram and I'm just trying to figure it out. And I'm like, what are you figuring out? And he tells me, I'm just trying to be a less selfish person. That's what he said. So that was sort of shocking and jarring and enough to get me to really want to go and see and visit and, and what is this all about? You know, what is this guy learning about? So while I was there, the primary goal was to observe him. His name's Cole. It was to observe Cole and to, to sort of see what's different, what's changed, that kind of thing. So funny enough, you know, while I was actually at the, at the academy, I don't feel that I had any, you know, revelatory moments. But in hindsight, I thought about it and I thought about that plane ride. And it was nonstop from Dubai to LA. So I think total it was 18 hours. And I think about that plane ride and I think about the feeling of me on the way from LA over and just sort of being stuck, being sort of in motion, but stuck and on the way to something entirely unexpected and something that, I mean, I have no, I had no frame of reference. Everybody tells you this about India as an American, especially, but I think most Westerners can identify with this. Everyone says, you have no idea what's going to hit you. It's like a sensory overload. And that's totally right. Um, And so I think sitting on that plane for just hour upon hour upon hour, maybe going a little stir crazy, maybe there's an element of that. You just go a little cuckoo in the tin can for 18 hours. (laughs) I, I looked back on that and I was like, was that my moment of, of just meditation? Was that my moment of just talking to this part of myself that I really wouldn't have access to because there's no phone, there's no, you know, computer, there's no, I didn't even have a book out. I wasn't watching anything. I was just sort of zoned out for hours on hours, sort of, I think there was an element of fear there too. It was the first, it was the biggest trip I've taken on my own. So there was an element of fear sort of driving at me and I just felt like, what am I doing? And I think to answer your question, Funny enough, on, on the plane ride there, that was the moment of, of just pure, pure meditation and pure just like, in hindsight, it was a revelation. It was like, you know, I think about that and I think about being on the way, but not necessarily knowing what lies ahead and not necessarily having anything to do, <laughs> <laughs> just sort of being hopelessly, you know, propelled on that way. And it's it's kind of similar to, to where I'm at now. It's, I think it's similar to a lot of people. We're just sort of 
Oh, this is so nihilistic, but it's just like, we're just hopelessly kind of striving, you know, and whether we consciously know that we're striving towards something, you know, whether that's you waking up in the morning saying, I'm going to get after it at work today and I'm going to, you know, make eight calls and every one of those eight calls is going to lead to a profit. It's like, it's, it's not necessarily that it's this, this part of you that none of us can access that just is moving. It's in motion constantly. It's striving towards something. So I, I definitely felt uh, that that moment for sure on the way there. That that was the big one for me. But uh, there were moments of just awe. It it is unlike anything I've ever seen. It is a place that just is so so alien to me. You know, funny enough, sometimes the traffic in L.A. is still as bad as Mumbai. But, uh, <laughs> oh God, yes. Like, I, never mind. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I was like, no, don't even get me started on traffic. <laughs> oh, we could we could go on a 45-minute, hour-long tirade about that right now. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah, so it was, I mean, it was awesome. It was everything I had hoped for, for sure. But yeah, it, it that revelation, you know, I, I find this with a lot of the things I, I always am seeking and trying to push myself and, and do new things. And, you know, that took the form in India this summer. And the summer before that, my, my brother and I and my producer, Matt, we uh, climbed Mount Whitney and that that was a really special experience. We'd been sort of yearning for that for years and it's really hard to get a permit. So we lucked out and did it. And that was another one where you just, you don't really know ultimately when you're there and you're on the switchbacks, you know, at the at the crest of the trail, you're you're at the last little push right before the top. And you just don't really know why you're there. You know, you're in a lot of pain, you've been hiking all day and you're sweating and burnt. And my, my poor brother, you know, uh, was totally sick. The elevation, like he just got totally turned around and bent. So, um, you're just up there. You're like so confused, stumbling around, you know, and that moment of revelation comes not at the top, but right before, you know, it's like the last step, the last two steps where you're about to get up there and you're like, why am I here? And you sort of have that, that commune with, with yourself. You know, it sounds so woo woo to say it like that, but you sort of have that, you have that dialogue finally with that part of yourself that you can't touch or access. And it's, I mean, it's amazing. It's something that I, I don't think I'll ever forget. So I definitely felt that way, you know, Whitney, India, and, you know, hopefully the next one, right? It's like, that's why you strive. You strive for these things because, there's there's an intangible there. There's something that you don't. It's not necessarily climbing the mountain. Ugh, so corny. I'm not even going to go there. I'm not even going to say <laughs> it. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> <laughs> no, Jack. But you know what? I think it's really interesting that you phrased it that way. You know, it's not about the revelation. Doesn't even necessarily come at the top. It's when you're about to get there. It's on that flight to India. I've never heard it phrased that way. And I can absolutely agree with you because I think that there is some excitement and fulfillment that comes from not not quite yet having fulfilled that desire or that dream or whatever the case may be. How do you feel that these experiences play a role in your writing? I I think the biggest lesson that I learned from those, you know, sort of like you said, where it's it's not necessarily about the the product, it's about the process. You know, it's about getting there. It's not about being there. It's about getting there. 
I find that, you know, with writing, sometimes the most excitement I have is the first five pages. It's the first 10 pages. It's just diving in to something new, some idea that's been just gnawing at me for, for months or years. You just dive in and you just start a scene. And I always like to look at it this way, especially when I first start writing a script. And if I ever, you know, I'm going to copyright this one day, because if I, if I ever started teaching a screenwriting class, this would be the first lesson that I would teach these kids. I would say, write a scene. You have two people, one person the reader loves, one person the reader hates. They're in an argument. Keep that argument going until the midpoint. At the midpoint, switch it. Suddenly we love the one we hated and we hate the person we loved. End it there. What's more important than that? Right. That's a good, I'm going to try that for just for size, for fun. <laughs> in, in terms of an exercise in, in dialogue and an exercise in telling a story, it's like if you can make your reader, it's easy to make your reader love someone and to hate them. But if you can, if you can walk that line and not just walk that line, but flip it, you know, flip those roles, then I think you're really onto something. You know, then I think you, you really have the capability, especially to be a screenwriter, because that, that's what's interesting. Nobody wants to see a movie about the hero who is a hero the whole time. We love him. He's great. Rah, rah, rah. The villain is a villain the whole time. We hate him. We loathe him. He gets defeated. Woo, that's the end. No one wants to watch that. Mm-hmm. People want complex characters because that's what life is. Life is complex. We are complex animals. Some days I'm the villain, some days I'm the hero. It's like, it's, <laughs> it's the same for everybody. So why not write that way? And sometimes that goes against the whole, you know, I think it comes a lot from, do you know Joseph Campbell? I don't. So Joseph Campbell was a writer who sort of, he, he wrote a book called The Power of the Myth. And he was one of the really seminal people who sort of put into words this idea, this concept of a, a hero's journey which we all know, right? So it's like, you know, you have your step into the unknown and then, you know, the quest begins. And it's like, we, we all know this is something we become so, we've become so accustomed to it. And especially because it's just done and redone and redone and redone time and time again. And I think that goes into a larger discussion. But I think the problem with screenwriting nowadays and the problem with a lot of young writers and especially writers who go to film school is in film school, you're, you're taught this very formulaic approach, step by step, you know, the hero's journey. It has to be this way. It has to be structured. And that's sort of what I ran into in England in that screenwriting class is I felt like it was very, I was very abstract. And yeah, it just, it did not go well. But there is something important about breaking from the structure. There's something important about defying it. And there's something important about just emphasizing the human qualities of characters and people and telling a human story, you know, maybe it doesn't make the most sense. Maybe it's not the most coherent, but it's human. It's, it's real. You know, we all identify with that. And I I think that's, I would say that's why like a David Lynch is so successful. That's why I love David Lynch's work, like Twin Peaks, especially just because it's, it's so human. You can get caught up in the abstractness of it and the meaning and significance of things. But at the end of the day, it's like, it's really interesting because it's human and these people are imperfect. So that's my TED talk. But, uh, <laughs> that's my, that's my copywritten uh, <laughs> theory of teaching screenwriting. What advice would you give to somebody just starting their career in screenwriting? I would say, I think my dad 
God bless him. Uh, and just saying to write, it's like everybody who says that, and it's so true. Just just keep writing. Always, 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 always. If you have an idea, put it on paper. Don't type it into your notes app. Don't type it into your iPad. Put it on paper. Write it out, like with a pen. Write it out. Okay. With a pen, blank piece of paper. To me, that is the key. That has always been the key because phones come and go iPads come and go, computers come and go, these digital forms come and go. They're, they're, they're not permanent. But if you write it down on a piece of paper, who knows, maybe, you know, six years after you write it, you'll stumble upon it looking for an idea. And then there you go. You got your obscura right there, you know? <laughs> so I, I would say that's, that's a big thing. Um, watch, read, you know, those are all important. Anyone will tell you that. I would say for me, though, the most important thing, just because I think what I've struggled with the most so far, and, you know, again, I'm, I'm stepping through, but it's, I'm fairly new, fairly new to this, but you know, it's the most important thing I think for me is remembering that you have a voice for a reason. That part of you that's inaccessible is there for a reason. And that informs the way that you write. It informs the way that you tell a story. And there are always valid critiques. There's a lot of valid criticism out there. And I've had a lot of it. You should always be getting notes from people who know more, who've been around in the industry longer. That is incredibly important. And I mean, I've been so fortunate just, you know, through the show that I'm on to have met veteran writers who have been able to read my work and like, you can't beat that. That's amazing. You know? It's great to have notes from people who've been doing it for years and years because, you know, I think as we see with the strike, it's like at the end of the day, this is a creative field, but you know, it's also, it's a job. It's a living also. So, you know, you need to sort of remember that and respect the old guard, respect veterans, people who've been doing it forever because they know, they know a thing or two about how it works. So I think that's important, but I wish someone had told me to not let yourself lose what is personal, what is what makes your writing your writing. Even if it's imperfect, even if it's kind of ugly and and not structured and, you know, I think the biggest thing that I hear from people is that I ramble too much, as you probably tell with the podcast. But uh it's I wish that someone had told me that it's like just keep writing. It's okay, you know your voice isn't perfect. You know, the way that you write isn't, it will never be perfect. It's, it's, you're striving always, but just keep that sense if you can, you know, keep that part of you that, that got you into the business in the first place. I think a lot of people lose it and a lot of people get comfortable and get, you know, get formulaic and just sort of, you know, if you don't step out of line, you're good. You'll keep your job, you know, you'll keep making money and that's great, but I don't know. I I want more visionaries. You know, I want more weird people. I want more David Lynch's. I want more people who push the envelope. It feels like there's less and less of that these days. So I would just say, walk that line a little bit if you can, you know, get the <laughs> notes, get the notes when you can get the notes. Of course, they're always great. Take them or leave them though. Take them or leave them. It's an opinion. Take it or leave it. If you could go back in time and offer yourself one piece of advice when you just started your career, but that's specifically tailored to you, 
what would it be? I think I would say, don't let them talk you out of who you are. It's easy to do. It's easy to be convinced that way, but you are here for a reason. You are drawn to this industry. You're drawn to writing for a reason because of who you are. So don't be convinced otherwise. Don't be convinced that you have to fit into the neat, packageable structure that's so appealing to so many you know, agencies and managers and studios these days. Don't, keep, don't be convinced that that's enough, you know? Stay true to yourself. And Jack, where can people find you and find you what, what you're doing and keep up with your work? Uh, corner of Fairfax and... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, I... You know, I, I wish I could say that social media was a bigger part. I have a website. That's a big one. I have a website with a contact there, jhdeacons.com. So if anyone's looking to check out the old dot com they can check that out but uh yeah i wish i wish i was better with the socials but i'm just awful well i'm going to include the website in the podcast notes below so anyone who wants to keep up with what you're doing and see what you've done which i highly recommend because you are so talented um, i'm going to include that there and jack thank you so much for your time today for coming on here i have a feeling that we're gonna we're gonna be having a we're gonna have another interview and it's going to be a few years down the line and we'll look back at this one someday. Oh, that'll be fun. We get to pick this one apart. I like that. I'm, I'm looking forward to that. Well, thank you so much, Chuck. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. This has been excellent. And there you have it. A heartfelt journey from vision to creation with the incredibly talented Jack Deacons. We've delved into the mind of a screenwriter, producer, and director who not only graces the sets of ABC's The Rookie, but has also woven his magic with the award-winning short film, Obscura. The awards Obscura has earned at esteemed festivals like LA Film Awards, New York Film Awards, Actors Awards Los Angeles, and the Top Shorts Film Festival speak volumes about Jack's ability to captivate audiences with his storytelling prowess. Best Thriller, Best Actor in an Indie Film, Best Indie Film, and Best First-Time Director are not just accolades. They are the echoes of passion and dedication that resonate through Jack's work. Our conversation with Jack unfolded against the backdrop of the 2023 writer's strike, a challenging time for the industry. Jack's resilience and commitment to his craft shone through as he shared insights and inspirations, navigating through the storm with an unwavering determination to keep creative flame alive. And let's not forget the unique upbringing that shaped Jack's artistic journey, raised by an agent and director. It's a narrative that adds layers of depth to the story of a man who has not only witnessed the inner workings of the industry from a young age, but has also carved his own path with creativity and distinction. In the tapestry of creativity, Jack Deakins has woven a narrative that echoes with resilience, passion, and unyielding commitment to the art of storytelling. May his journey inspire you to embrace challenges as opportunities, and may your own creative endeavors be fueled by the unwavering belief that every vision has the power to transform into a masterpiece of creation.